Okay, so we'll be starting in Romans chapter 9, starting probably verse 18 here. Um, I'm going to do my best not to backtrack up, um, but we will probably be making references along the way. The hope today is to press from verse 18 of chapter 9 into uh, chapter 10, the first kind of paragraph there in chapter 10, and, and hopefully in, in verse 4. This is a long stretch of Scripture. Um, it's quite possible uh, that we get sidetracked along the way and, and that we don't uh, make it all the way through. But my hope, the reason that I want us to pre- that I want us to at least attempt to make this this press from where we are to there is, um, I feel like a lot of times when we're exploring the ideas of election, when we're exploring specifically in chapter 9, there's a lot of difficult areas, and we've, we've kind of been in that for, for uh, a couple of lessons at, at this point. Um, and it's very easy for us to get sidetracked from the bigger truth that Paul is trying to put forward as he's laying this argument out, and that that truth being what we find in verse 6 of chapter 9, where he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. This is what he's trying to work out, and um, it's difficult, and there's difficult thoughts, there's difficult ideas uh, that come about in working through the idea of God's providence, God's election throughout history, and, and how that affects uh, the world, how that affects um, entire groups of people, how that affects individuals. And, and Paul's kind of laying this out. Um, as we've said in the past, Like what, what Paul's trying to point out is that there is this ever-narrowing funnel throughout human history that, that, that finds its, its end at Christ. So there's a narrowing down of people, right? chosen people ultimately pointing to Christ and then from that and this is what I think that we get these glimpses of when we get down into the latter part of chapter 9 and and into chapter 10 is that the the point of election was never just the narrowing down but this narrowing down to a single individual the way the truth the light like this is Christ all of election pointing to him and then from him effectively reaching the nation. So the other side of that is like Christ sends out preachers. He sends out messengers. He, like through the work of Christ in the cross, the purpose of election finds its like its teeth, right? Because we know th- through the study of Scripture who we are apart from Christ. We know that we are a people who without Him having sought after us that we don't seek. Like, no one has sought God. Like, had God not sought us, all would have gone astray and continued in it, right? Yet He, is, he has been working this purpose together, and it is through this pinnacle of all that God is doing in the cross, in the spread of the gospel, through um, the word that we preach about Christ, that we find the power of salvation for for men and women who are slaves to sin and dead in their sins and trespasses, right? And this is like what we find as we get into it. And don't think that it is 
Don't think that it is out of place that we find in this as we continue through that we're going to find the, so faith comes from hearing and hearing the word about Christ. Where is this? This is in chapter 10. This is the run. This is the idea, the entire like purpose of our preaching, right? Where we see in chapter 10, how then will they call on him? in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him who they've never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching, and how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Right? Like We find that beautiful piece of Scripture in this chapter 9, 10, and 11 run. Right? So... Um, Paul opens up with this idea that God has been steadily working and narrowing in his choosing of people throughout history, this work of election, down to the, to the one man Christ, and then from him, him being the whole purpose and place, like, um, of, of what God is doing here. Um, and nonetheless, nonetheless, um, Christ being the central focus of all that God's been doing in election, that does not alleviate us from the difficulties of the questions that come, right? And, and we see this because Paul continues as he's kind of laying out this, this idea of election here. He raises the questions that we too raise. right? So um, if you read and you read through this in your brain, um, is leading you naturally to think certain thoughts and then he answers that thought in the or or starts to answer that thought in the very next passage of text then you are thinking at least in line with where Paul sees these ideas leading if your understanding of election does not lead you to those thoughts then you probably need to have your understanding Realigned by Scripture, because it would make no sense for Paul's trains of train of thought to be going to the east, and the only way that you could come to these questions would be if your train of thought went to the west, right? Like if you if if the way that you think through this problem does not lead you to the questions that he has, then you're probably not thinking about it in a complete and honest way. Right? So it is the reality of these truths that they lead us to these questions. It is very important for us the way that we approach those questions. Right? And I think that we see this as well as we dig through this. Is, um, we see Paul becoming more and more pointed towards the heart that would question the character of God. And this is kind of where we're at right now. So verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Is this a true statement? Um, last time we kind of talked about this, um, I, I asked the question, like, is God free to, to do this? Like, does he move against his character when he does this? When he, when, if, if this statement is true, verse 18, so then he, speaking of God, has mercy on whomever he wills. Is it God's prerogative to show mercy or not? That's a question that we should have. Um, the, the other way that you could pose that question, is God obligated to show mercy? Right? He's not. 
So if you have been shown mercy, if you find yourself as a created being, a rebel against God, having found yourself enjoying the mercies of God, it is first and foremost because of God. Right? He chose to show you mercy. Right? Um, and the, the flip side of that, and this is the part that I think oftentimes we find the most difficulty with, um, and, and as believers, like if you're a believer, you probably don't necessarily find, the, find it difficult because you necessarily like fear that he would harden you. Um, but you, you, if we're honest, what happens here is that we all have people who we love and we cherish who we fear they might fall into that category, right? Like that's, that's the reason that it, that it concerns us so. Is that, is that we know people and we're like, has he hardened them? Like, is there hope for them? Um, your, your response to that, what is, what is the only hope that they have? Those people that you might fear are hardened. What's the only hope that they have? Mercy. That God would show mercy. And how has he? The preached word of God. Okay? The preached word of God. If they would but believe. Okay, so one of the things that I don't want us to, to separate is this complete and utter fear of hardening for someone and the fact that if they but believe, just as you believed and it's counted to you as righteousness, if they but believe, it will be counted to them as righteousness as well. How will they believe? Yeah. By hearing the gospel preached. And the Spirit moves primarily through the preaching of the Word to solidify that Word, to soften the heart, right? Yes. He's working in all things. Yes. You know, like even the experiences that people have, God is using those to say, this is what I showed you in my word, but it never takes the place of the No, it doesn't. And in, in a context, like, we find, and I, when I say primarily, that God works primarily through the preaching of his word, is that there are secondary effects that I think sometimes we don't necessarily attribute it to the word having been preached, but nonetheless, if you look at those secondary effects, that those effects exist because the word was preached, right? And, 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 and this is like an example of this would be like a culture that is open to the gospel, right? A culture that is open to the gospel because the gospel has been preached and has taken hold to some degree, right? Example, like our culture that we live in is far from holy. Um, but you will find glimpses of the reality 
that the gospel has in some ways permeated, even in the way that, that sinners sin sometimes. Like, the grace that it is that you could hear the name of God although it's being blasphemed on the lips of sinners, right? Jesus Christ. You might hear in a movie, and they ain't glorifying His name. But the fact that the culture at large understands and knows who that is is the result of men and women who came before us faithfully holding the line, the gospel being preached, such that the world, the culture around, would know that they could use that as a word of blasphemy. Right? So you would hear that. Paul, even though men in his day were preaching in a fashion... Almost to spite him, he's happy because the gospel's being preached, right? Well, yeah, because he knew that even though some of those that were getting outside the lines, you know, and really trying to make sure that penetrate Because here's the reality. Here's the reality. I might stand here and I might speak the word. And I may or may not be effective. Dustin may go and he may preach the Word and he may or may not be effective. The Word is effective. The Word. Even if someone speaks from this book... I have a bad thought that comes with that. I mean, and really, it's, it's the truth, but then it's a bad thought at the same time. Because... Okay, you're dropping the seed into the ground in the garden. Yeah. You're dropping the seed of the Word of God. What is influencing that too? You just described people taking the Lord's name in vain. What is that in comparison to the seed itself? Yeah. Isn't it what we take from animals to make fertilizer with? Right. It's trash. It's, yeah. It's the, it's the terrible part. But it influences it. Yeah. And it grows. And it, and it does yeah. grow. And it and grows. It, it, so God can take even the worst of the worst yeah. and make His Word grow. Yeah. Wow. Good. Yeah. So that would be... Those are, those are like secondary influences. Like the Gospel primarily, the Word primarily taking root, making, having legitimate influence, but then you might think that you seek, though you never came to church, right? But you will not find someone like that in a culture where the gospel has never been preached, right? You can't find people who make that claim that they sought after God even though they weren't in church outside of places where there are churches, right? Outside of places where that context can be made. Right? So like the primary mover, the primary influence, the gospel. But as the gospel is preached, as the gospel takes hold in people's lives, then we find these secondary influences that are means of mercy for softening the heart of people in those in those cultures, right? So like 
primarily if you have someone who you love and you find yourself looking at the latter part of that and say he hardens whomever he wills preach the gospel to every one you know and pray second corinthians chapter 3 yes that the veil of their hearts be, yes you know that they would understand because and making sure that our word that we're preaching is not the message of like that's condemning right but the message of christ yes that is hope that yes Yes. Like that's what we're talking about today. Like preach the word. Like the unfiltered, beautiful gospel. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's the power of God for salvation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what Paul's laying out here. So if you find yourself fixated on the on the he hardens who he wills, preach the gospel. That he's he's we're we're going we're going to get we're going to get there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you don't do anything, if you don't preach the gospel, then they're just going to stay like that. Right. So why would you not? Yeah. You know, if yeah. you don't give any effort, this is then there's the no chance. Yeah. So if you show them Christ through your life and preaching the gospel, like at least there's a yes. chance that they may not. Yes. It's the catalyst for missions. Yes. It's the, yeah. It's the only hope for effective <laughs> missions. Yeah. Yeah. And we pray like our God is a personal God. So like, and and even if you look through this whole run, and we're not gonna. This is far enough along that we're we're a couple from from hitting it. But you'll see even like as Paul fleshes this out more and more, um, specifically towards the people of Israel and their hardening, he speaks of a temporary hardening for a purpose, right? So like. God's hardening um, of hearts is not always to the ultimate destruction of that individual, right? Um, now, if God wills, who could resist His will? And this is kind of the, the point that, that we get as we, as we press in next. So verse 19, um, you will say then, so the natural flow from what he's just said is, uh, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And the, the answer to this is, who could resist God's will? No one. No one. That's not a hard one for us to, to dig into, right? Who could resist his will? None. None. Verse 20. But that's not the way that he approaches answering this, is it? The way that he approaches answering this, and he's so he's gone from as he's answered the, the previous like questions that he himself has posed, he's gone from a gentler to a more and more pointed approach at answering the question. And here we find here we find the ultimate the ultimate end of that Um, because at this point the question is not is God free to do as he wills that's not the question that we have in our heart that's not the trouble that we have the question and the trouble that we have is is God good that's the that's the problem because if we trust that God is good 
all good, all perfect, all merciful, all kind. If we trust that His character is flawless, then we don't question how He uses His will because we trust that an all good, all merciful, all kind, gentle Savior that seeks after us will choose the right thing. We would trust that. But the problem that Paul sees here is not that we struggle with these ideas, and we ought to struggle with these ideas. These are not easy things to wrestle with, especially as we play it out on the global and historical scale, right? But the question that should never enter our mind is, is God good? Because when we think in that way, when that is the position of our heart, to question the character of God, then rightly Paul ought to respond as he does here. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Like, find your place already. Right? Know who you are and who he is. You who sin daily and question the character of God. You who, in questioning the character of God, find yourself sinning. Who are you? That's, that's the right answer to that state of the heart here. Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So the ultimate question here is, is God free to do as he wills? Not is he, not can he, because we all would say, yes, he can, but should he? Like, is he morally obligated to his own character to do as he wills? And who are we? Like, what position do we find ourselves in that we could think ourselves high enough to question his character, his motives, his means? Ultimately, we're in no position to question him. You don't know what tomorrow looks like, much less what eternity looks like. You don't know what your decisions today, how they will affect tomorrow. He has, from before He spoke anything into existence, known perfectly every moment that would ever be. We can't, I can't tell you what a week from now holds. Right? Like I can kind of project, you, you all could kind of project, but find yourself at the end of 2019 trying to project what the next couple years look like. Right? Like time and time again, our estimates of the future are off. And yet we think that we can decide about such grand things as these better than the Creator who knows all things. Right? Like who are you, O oh man? Um, that's, that's how we ought to be um, kind of put in our place um, because we have, no, we have no place to question um, God and his decisions. Um, verse 21, has the potter the right over the clay? Like, should he have right over his creation? 
Yes, to make out of one lump a vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. The, the latter part of that question I think sometimes we struggle with because we have a misguided understanding of that lump that he's using, right? Like we think we are good and that we need a little polishing up. Like God, he needs to like kind of get the rough edges out of us. We don't see ourselves as a total rework of everything that we are and everything that we desire. So when we see this lump, we think of a good lump. We think of a useful lump. We don't think of what we actually were, which is trash. God makes... Let's read this. When you consider that the lump that he had to work with was us to make out of the same lump, that is, humanity, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Um, I would venture to say that the work to make that lump for honorable use is a much greater effort on God's part than to make the one for dishonorable use. I would say the work that he has to do in the hearts of each and every one of the ones that he redeemed is much greater effort than that that he would have to do on the ones who are fallen and seeking their own destruction anyways. Yeah, it lets you do your thing and you will destroy yourself. Is Yeah, so I would, be, I would, the first thing I would say, I would be careful in, um, br- in bridging and like bridging analogies between the two. Um, like when, when we find analogies used in scripture, there are times where we can take two, two uses of that analogy and, and bring them together and there be no, um, tension because perhaps the point that is trying to be teased out of it is, is, is a different or is the same point but in the case where there might be two points that are trying to be um, or two examples that are trying to be made um, if we're using a something like I could use an example to, to bring out one point and another could use an example to bring out another if we if we try to bring from one example over into into another then we might there's going to be some some ri- like risks in, inherent in it's that. It's like using an object um, to do an object lesson with a child and you're teaching one particular yes. thing and then over here you're using it to do another. You see, can compare the two yeah. things. Not, not, necessarily direct, not necessarily directly. Like what you would want to do is you would want to flow through that particular text. Yes. Now it could be the case that when you do that that there are sufficient similarities between the point that's trying to be brought out through that example that there that you could overlay but but even still there would be 
there would be dangers dangers in it because um, when he's writing when he's writing one he's got a particular train of thought that he's following versus when he's when he's giving the example in another he may not be going in the same direction right because you could use the honorable dishonorable there's lots of ways that you could use that right um, you could use that and in one case you could have the dishonorable be lost in other case, you could use it and the dishonorable not necessarily be lost, but um, someone who's not as far down the line of um, sanctification, right? So like there, yeah, yeah, so like it, in those two, in those two examples, that's, that's kind of the, the thought that I would have there is um, there may be things that are similar that, that we could compare, but they're um, a Specifically, when it comes to like ideas related to election, and this is this is this is me. Like this is the approach that I tend to take: is that um, I I treat or attempt to treat every um, account on its own. Without now, there are like if we were just sitting down having a discussion, and it wasn't like. I'm responsible for everything that I say <laughs> and will be held accountable in attorney. I, I might venture, I might venture more in like things that I don't necessarily have like a, a hold on, but, um, in this particular, in this particular context, like where I'm going to be responsible for everything, I'm going to just treat because this is one where it's, there's room for, there's room for disagreement in, in much of it. Um, and, what often happens when we when we start like if we start mounting up from various places instead of running through that context is that it can become overwhelming oh, yeah. to everyone um, in, involved in that. So here we find here we find the question about has God being the potter writes over his clay. We find here um, that he makes in it, 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 we can kind of draw out from this question that he lays out here that he that he makes some for honorable and some from dishonorable. Um, the point that I want us to get out of that is the lump that he is working from there is not a lump of sin free creatures right that that both the honorable and dishonorable come from the same fallen the same fallen lump verse 22 and he's he's posing a couple of other questions and this is one where like when we get into this i want us to i want us to think about this um this one i'm, I'm just gonna i'm gonna read it and then we'll we'll kind of go go back over so verse 22 uh, pay pay close attention to this paul is um, not here saying he's a how to how to word this um, he's he's putting forward an idea to see how you react to the thought okay um, what if okay I, I, and I want when we when we run through this, I want you to give me a response to this question. What if God desiring to show His wrath? So the first thing that I want us to think about is God is free. 
God has a desire and a will. God has a character from which he acts, right? That character is holy, good, righteous. He is a person. He has desires. What if God desiring to show his wrath? Okay. Is God free both in the can he and should he sense to show his wrath? Okay, see, the, his wrath is holy. Now, this is a key point for us to take away. When we, th- when we see this word, when we see this thought and this idea that God might desire to show his wrath, that he might want to show his wrath, we struggle with that a lot because we think of wrath from our point of view. Right? Now, is, is wrath, can wrath be holy and good? Yes. It can. We struggle with that, don't we? Why do we struggle with that? Thank you. Our wrath is not holy. But we can see, like, in our, in our fallen, broken wrath, we're, what we're doing is we're reaching in the dark in some sense for this idea that seems right. If someone abuses children, what do you want for them? Destruction. Like, what does your, like, does your heart say mercy in that moment? Now, here's the thing. You ought to desire mercy over wrath. When you're thinking, because the, we are on the other side of that holiness. Right? You are closer to the sexual offender in your holiness than you are to Christ in your holiness. This is why we ought to desire mercy because we have been shown great mercy. But there are those who have on this side seemingly escaped all form of punishment seeming to have gotten away with their heart's desire when their heart's desire was bent on the destruction of others. God's wrath towards those is holy and good and merciful and kind. God will not deal out justice in such a way that it is not weighted rightly and fairly. And you can't understand his mercy apart from understanding the holiness. Yes. Yes. And this is this is what Paul here is trying to tease out of this text. Like, look what he says. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make his power or make known his power? So he is desiring to make known his wrath and his power, what has he done? Has endured with much patience 
vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, when we read vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, this is where our minds tend towards reprobation, where we start again down that path of like questioning the character of God for this. Like your sins mount up for you. Your sins are not forgotten. Your outside of Christ, right? Now, now in Christ, Christ finished completely the cup of God's righteous and holy wrath for us, right? So ours are as far as the east is from the west because Christ took our place. But for the one that that can't be said, their sins prepare them for the destruction that awaits them. That's the reality. That's the reality. Why is hell eternal and not finite? Is a question that I often get. Like, wouldn't it be fair and just of God to, to punish a little and then just wipe you out of existence? Your sin, one, does not stop because the only thing that writes that ship is the gospel and the Holy Spirit working in us. So in eternity, sinners sin. And sinners have, for years, been mounting up for themselves sin against an infinite and holy God who is eternal, equally present in all moments in time forever. We underestimate our tiny small sins and just how grand they are because we have committed them first and foremost against an infinitely holy God. And we do ourselves a great injustice when the gospel is preached to us and we spurn that gospel. Um, So what if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction verse 23 not just for their destruction right in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory so this is the other end of this So there are those who will meet destruction. And there are those whom God has... Like, there is not the words large enough, all-encompassing enough for us to truly grasp the mercy that He has shown to us as believers. But this work of destruction, in some way, makes, makes that known to us more deeply and more richly. This is, this is a reality. Yeah. That I can't earn my good works. Nothing works. 
my sin is that deep. Mm-hmm. And, and even a child, a very young child, that is the true moment of salvation, in my opinion. A lot of it is just like, I didn't understand a whole lot except I was going to hell because yeah. I was in sin. Yeah. And then God started the work in me, and it's continued. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's something we need to consider with our children, that it's okay for them not to fully understand the grace of God, because I'm still trying to grasp Yeah, and we, it will, that is an eternal work that will yes. take place for us. Yeah. Want salvation because they're scared of hell. Like I don't. I don't think that that's. I feel like a lot of people are are like that's not. You didn't really get saved. Then. Like, yeah. And I think it's important not to diminish that because for a lot of people that is that moment of conversion, and then then you learn yes. all the other. Yes. Things. Yes. And salvation, like it's a continual working. You. He's working out our salvation. It's not instant and I understand everything about it and how you know how sinful I am and all all of that like you have to God has to work that out in you and until you have that initial moment of conversion like he can't do that yeah and And, and now he's working out like we will as we live our lives some some of us may live to way old age some of us may die young none of us none of us are going to be even close to what we will be on the other side. Um, there is much of what I believe that will be readjusted when Christ opens the, the words to me face to face. We all have much, much growth to do. Um, in, in this text, um, Paul is proposing here this idea that God has desired to make himself known and God is making himself known maximally to his creation, um, most maximally to the church, to those who follow him. We will know God in a way because of the way he has worked out history, we will know him in a way that would have been impossible otherwise, right? And part of this, part of this, this is why it's, there's this tension here. If he's showing his wrath, but he's not simply showing his wrath. There's this other aspect to it, like displaying his wrath in those that are prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the four vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, now here's a, there's a pivot that happens here. Um, we're going to just read through this. We'll come back next time, but but know that there's this this pivoting that starts taking place in verse 20, 24 here. Um, away from the answering of these questions that we would have, back into this um, this bigger idea of, but is it not? It, it is not as though the word of God has failed. So he's been working this out because of some of the ideas that we get into there in the middle of chapter nine. He's had to kind of pose these questions. Ultimately, he's getting at the heart of things. Like question yourself if you're questioning the character of God. Now he's now he's going back, right? He's going back here. 
Verse 24, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. This bigger picture. God hasn't failed. He's working something bigger out, right? As indeed He says, verse 25, um, as indeed He says in Hosea, those who are not My people, I will call My people. And her who is not beloved, I would call beloved. Again, He's plugging back into this bigger idea that He's trying to answer. That God hasn't failed, that He's always been narrowing down, and He's been narrowing down so that He could bring in the world here, right? That's what he's bringing up. Verse 26. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So here he's again showing where Scripture has predicted this moment. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. No, 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 no. It's predicting that this would take place. Verse 29. And Isaiah... And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Why do any Jews believe? Why were they not all swept away in confusion? Why? Because God, because God was merciful. Verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Why why did most of them fall away? They did not have faith. Verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And he brings this out again. He brings out more scripture to show that this was foretold. Verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 1 of chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. This is what we see in the people of the Jews. They were seeking. They were more concerned about the washing of hands than the law of God. For Christ, verse 4 here, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. They were seeking. Up in, um, back in chapter 9, um, in verse 31 there. Um, but the Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Verse 4 of chapter 10, But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Um, We're going to end right there. Um, We'll come back. We'll probably touch on a little bit of that um, that we kind of went through quickly there at the end next time. And then we're going to kind of push on again. Paul continues. um, This is probably one of the greatest little runs of faith. Um, and the work of the preaching of the gospel that we're about to enter into. And then he goes back again um, into answering that question about why it is that only a remnant of Israel remains. 
Um, so we'll, we'll get that next time.